Hello and welcome back to We Not Me, the podcast where we explore how humans connect to get stuff done together. I'm Dan Hammond. And I am Pia Lee. And Pia Lee, welcome. Welcome back to the world of communications. I feel, I think you have a story to tell us this week about your your recent days. Yeah, it's been a, a bit of a baptism by floods. You know, you moved to the country and um, and we had biblical rains. It really was pretty huge. And so we were like pretty much northern New South Wales without power, without communication and without water. It did make the toilet situation a little interesting mm. for a couple of days. Mm. Um, but we are we are safe and dry, but it it has been an extraordinary and and devastating event for up here. And really interesting to live the experience with no communication, no no outside media to have any idea what's going on, only your lived experience at, at the moment of going through it and then talking to people who can get through because we were flooded in both ways on our road. Just the the generosity of the community spirit has just blown me away. It has been a huge we with a big capital W-E. Yes. <laughs> not me. Uh, you know, we've had people offering their help, helping us out, mending fences, you know, it, it because it's, yeah, it's a mess. But it's just been incredible. Yeah, it, it, I'm sure. Yeah, just talking to you earlier really brings home to you what it's like to be in a disaster anywhere. People are suffering this all the time, aren't they? And it really, yeah, you can really build some empathy for people because you don't even know what's going on. It's not easy to, to do anything. So, um, yeah. And there's a lot of tension and tragedies going on around the world. Every, people are in similar and different situations. So it's... It's a very tense time. Yeah, and and I think if we look at the positive, the we not me side, um, obviously Ukraine is suffering uh, an invasion and uh, loads of civilians, uh, much violence inflicted on them. Uh, But the the positive of that is to see the amazing Ukrainian spirit, again, the we not me thing, uniting um, to take action and support each other. And that's actually spread out across Europe. You know, I've heard that there are Ukrainian lorry drivers stuck in the UK and uh, the British people have been really incredibly generous, taking them gifts and, and so on. So, yeah, there's some heartwarming things to come out of these terrible times, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And on the subject of extracting goodness from terrible things, our guest today did just that. Martin Bromley, we'll, we'll hear from him in a moment, but his, his profession is nowhere near this as an airline pilot captain. But he had a tragic event happen to him and his family, and he instead of blaming or looking for retribution he found a way to improve the lives of other people and save the lives of other people through his own work so um, it's an amazing story so let's go and hear martin now Martin, a very warm welcome to the We Not Me podcast. Hello, Dan. Good to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's great to to have you on the show, and we will very soon hear a full introduction from you. But as you know, we first we start by torturing our guests with a little card game. So before we do that, I'm going to ask you to choose from one of these sets of cards so that we can hear a little bit about you. I have a red pack of tricky questions, an orange pack of average questions and a green pack of quite nice pleasant questions to get to know a little bit about you which pack would you like to choose today i'll go on in in for it then so let's go with the red card oh cheeky we are going to run out of red cards at this rate our guests are all so um so bold so i'm going to just choose one at random oh here we go i am most embarrassed about most embarrassed 
embarrassed my voice, bizarrely. They always say you don't like your voice, but it's something that I've always been embarrassed about. Oh, interesting. What aspect of it? I, I think how it sounds to me. And apparently that's quite a common thing for people. There is a bit of a joke in my industry that when we talk over a public address system, we change our voice. I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> I hope it is. That's great. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, don't listen to this podcast, Martin, is my advice then. But but uh, it sounds fine to us. It's great to have that voice on this show. So thank you for being here. And Martin, you know, it's a real delight to have you. So, and to have somebody of your status, an OBE, very um, proud to have you on the show. Tell us a little bit about who you are. Well, my profession is that I'm an airline pilot. I'm a training captain for a major UK airline. And just to explain what that means, it means that I'm a, a regular captain. I fly uh, planes around with a couple of hundred passengers on board, and I have responsibility for the, the safe flight and operation of that aeroplane and keeping every on board, everyone on board safe. But being a training captain means that I have an additional responsibility whereby I actually get the privilege of training people to fly those aircraft. I get to instruct, to examine, and I even get to teach our new captains as well. Uh, and within that, I also have a responsibility for the regular training and examining of our flight crew. So flying, I guess, is not only my profession, it's my passion. I fly outside of work. I have instructed aerobatics in the past and uh, I just fly for fun. But the other thing I do in my life is I'm a trustee for a healthcare charity, a charity that I helped found 15 years ago. And I also have a, a very tidy little business on the side as well, where I do some public speaking. I go and talk to large organisations about the theme of making it easy to get it right. And, and I've worked with international engineering firms, with the police, with submariners, oil industry, air traffic control, uh, etc. Well, wow, it's a very it's very diverse sort of set of activities. And Martin, your story to get to this point is a, is an interesting and powerful and in places tragic one, of course. So, would you mind telling us that story? How, how did you come to this place where you have this particular interest in how teams operate? So. Back in 2005, I'm a, an airline pilot at the time, married, two young children, Victoria and Adam. And, you know, life was pretty normal, I guess you would say. But my wife, Elaine, had to go into hospital. She, she was healthy, but she's had some problems. She had her sinuses would often get blocked after a cold and it got to a point where it became quite severe. And essentially, a doctor recommended that she should have surgery to sort the problem out. She goes into hospital uh, on the 29th of March 2005. But after she's anaesthetized, problems occurred. And sadly, she ended up unconscious. She never awoke from the anaesthetic. And five days later, I had to make the decision to switch her life support off. She died 13 days after the uh, original attempted operation. So Elaine was being cared for by an experienced anaesthetist and his experienced assistant. They had a, a good plan to start off having anaesthetized Elaine to put her to sleep, if you like. The plan was to fit something called a laryngeal mask. This is like an oxygen mask, and it helps the patient keep breathing while they are sedated. 
the mask wouldn't fit though uh, they tried different sizes of mask but while this was going on elaine's oxygenation the level of oxygen in her body was falling anything below about 90 percent is considered critical and it fell through 75 percent down to 40 percent or lower she's turning blue so this is a sign of oxygen starvation of what's termed hypoxia and we know that six minutes into this procedure, by this stage, the anaesthetist had decided to change tack. He'd started to try and intubate, put a flexible tube down her airway, which is a, a logical thing to have been doing. His assistant had called for help. And over the next couple of minutes, uh, the surgeon waiting to perform the op came in. Another anaesthetist came in and another anaesthetic assistant, as well as two nurses, all came into the room. And what happened was that three doctors were gathered round a lane, attempting to intubate using a variety of techniques and bits of equipment. And the other four staff, let's call them the more junior staff, the anaesthetic assistants and nurses, were doing some things under their own initiative, which I'll mention in a moment. But by the time we're at 10 minutes in, this has become, with hindsight, something called can't intubate, can't ventilate. So this is a recognised emergency in anaesthesia. There's a protocol to follow to deal with this emergency. The team are now facing a very difficult situation. Elaine is blue. She's been starved of oxygen for over six minutes and they've tried a whole series of things that have failed. But there is a protocol they can follow that will help them. The anaesthetist uh, is very experienced, regarded as diligent and careful by his colleagues. The other surgeon, and so the other anaesthetist has other skills that will help in what's termed a difficult airway. The surgeon is also highly experienced. And in fact, because of the particular skills the surgeon had, if the anaesthetist struggled at this stage with what needed to come next, that particular surgeon would have been ideal to help them. And of the other four more junior staff present, three of them are all very experienced. Oh, and the other thing that's worth saying is this is an operating theatre that's well equipped. There's nothing missing that subsequently is felt would have made a difference. So if you like, if this emergency had to happen, then arguably this is the dream place and the dream team to deal with it. But what we know actually happened, whereas at this stage, the protocols would suggest one of two options, one of which they couldn't do for medical reasons, would have suggested some form of surgical access to the airway. So in other words, putting a cut in Elaine's throat, performing what's called a tracheostomy, for example, and there are other options as well. But what actually happened is that the three doctors persisted with their attempts to intubate. So they had become fixated under the stress probably, and this is a normal human reaction, they became so focused on trying to get that flexible tube down Elaine's airway that they actually were not really aware of the big danger here, which was simply that she was being starved almost completely of oxygen. And, and they eventually got her oxygenation back up to 90% after 25 minutes. They weren't happy with the security of the airway. They fiddled around and 35 minutes in, they decide that they're going to let her wake up naturally and abandon the operation. Now, at this point, it's worth saying that I don't think any of you need to be doctors or nurses to understand that if you starve somebody of oxygen completely for over 20 minutes, then that person is highly unlikely to survive. 
And when we looked, there was we had the report, the independent review. We then had an inquest as well. And the inquest allowed me the opportunity to ask some further questions, to build on the report. But in his own words, what happened is the leader, Nefertis, basically said he lost control. There was a dispute in the inquest about who people in the team felt was in charge at different points about what was happening. The The understanding amongst the three doctors of what was happening, what it meant and what needed to happen wasn't shared. What what I term in my industry situational awareness, the big picture, was not the same for the three doctors. Uh, the decision making we've already mentioned it became fixated, which meant they didn't even think about the protocol. They never used the protocol or mentioned it at all. And the communication amongst the doctors dried up. But when you look at the, the team around them, the more junior team, they were literally and metaphorically standing back. So they were able to observe and see what was happening. And in fact, they had a very good idea of what was going on. So when that six minute point, the assistant called for help, she asked her colleague to bring in the tracheostomy tray. When one of the nurses came in, she saw Elaine's colour, she saw her vital signs instinctively. She knew this was serious. She went out, phoned intensive care, came back in and announced to the doctors that a bed was available in intensive care. And and to quote from the inquest, they looked at her as if to say, what's wrong? You're overreacting. And in fact, at the inquest, two of the four more junior staff stated categorically they knew exactly what needed to happen, but didn't know how to broach the subject. So here we had a situation where the people who were making the key decisions and actions were really unaware of what the problems and issues were, yet the wider team were very aware, but were simply unable to get that message across. So in effect, we had a team of people that were actually a team of individuals who couldn't work together, who couldn't support each other. And, and I, I really just think it's important to say that the one thing I've, I will not do is criticise them. Because actually, when I started to look at the culture in healthcare, I discovered that the reality was they delivered what the system would have had them deliver because they didn't have the sort of education and learning that I have in my industry about how to work as a team, how to behave as a team. And even worse than that, they didn't have the processes and practices that meant that doing things that might have stopped this getting to that point or that might have helped interventions, those processes, protocols and the culture of doing that simply didn't exist. Listening to you, Martin, I feel like I'm almost in that operating theatre, listening to it. It's incredibly graphic. And I still think there's a part of me that's just quite stunned by your magnanimous conscious choice not to make somebody pay. You, you, how did you come to terms with this to really go on a course of action over the last 17 years that, that you know, has striven to to make this, overcome this in the whole National Health Service. I mean, I think there's something like 12,000 avoidable deaths per year in the UK, hospitals. Yeah, the, it's something like that. The figures are always in dispute, but the reality is that we know, and this is internationally, so it doesn't matter where you are in the developed world, as, it, as you might term it, is that the we know that errors and incidents impact patients about 
in 10% of the time that you are interacting with healthcare. And that's been found in all sorts of international studies. So every time you interact with healthcare, whether it's, it's collecting medicines, whether it's getting appointments arranged, whether it's having you know, surgery or being reviewed by a, a mental health practitioner, we know that about 10% of the time an error will occur. There's a lovely quote from Dr. Uh, sorry, Professor Lucian Leap at Harvard, who did a study and he said, I'm just going to quote you here, for one patient in every 300 entering hospital in the developed world, medical error results in or hastens death. So one in 300 is, is a really significant stat. But for me, in answer to your question, this was about how do I stop this happening to other people? Elaine was dead and it didn't matter what I did, that wasn't going to change, but I could maybe make the system better. And logically, the only way to do that was to understand why it made sense at the time. And and when you look at the training that, that doctors and nurses and allied health professionals have, it's very technical. It's not about how humans behave under pressure. It's not about how you can behave in a way that helps a team work well together. It's not about how you can behave that improves leadership. It's all about the technicalities of the patient, the equipment, the condition and all that sort of stuff. And there's a historical reason for that when you look at how healthcare has developed over the last few centuries. But in essence, in, in aviation, for example, you know, we've got a relatively short history of 100 or so years. And we're, what we do these days is we look at accidents and incidents and safety reports. So we look at what happens in the simulator when people perhaps are learning something new and either struggling or finding it easy. And that provides an evidence base of what are the behaviours that seem to make it easier to get it right and what are the behaviours that seem to lead to bad outcomes. And so what we have is a, a list, if you like, of behaviours and areas of competence that we know don't necessarily lead to success or an accident, but we know that in successes and in, in failures, certain behaviours are more or less present. And so my focus when I, I talk to organisations and talk to healthcare about teamwork, for example, is very much focusing on behaviours. So what are the specific behaviours you can use that make it easy for your team to get it right. Martin, you talked about this, these high levels of technical expertise, but it seems to be some of the human factors that can create these accidents. The, the aviation industry has learnt these lessons probably a, ahead of the health industry. So I think it's important to say, first of all, that what we've learned in aviation very early on was that technically we needed to be better at what we did. Technically, the aircraft needed to be better designed, better built, and technology has dramatically improved safety. But particularly as we got into the 60s and 70s, aircraft were becoming much safer, much more reliable, but accidents were still happening. And uh, United 173 was a, a good example, and it was probably the accident that really gave the biggest boost to our understanding of the human in the flight deck. So United 173 was a relatively small American jet airliner. It was a DC-8. It was flying an internal flight to Portland in Oregon. And this was in December 1978. Unfortunately, when they were about to start their approach to land, they went to put the undercarriage down, the gear down. And the indications uh, that they got in the flight deck suggested that there might be a problem that, that 
that uh, a couple of the, uh, the wheels were not in the right place. Now, what they did very carefully is they stopped the approach, they went into a holding pattern and they worked through all the manuals and, and worked out that, in fact, that the wheels were almost certainly in the correct position now and it was safe to land. Now, at that point, you might have thought, great, they can now land. But in fact, what happened is that the crew carried on circling for about another 40 minutes until they ran out of fuel. And they ended up crashing in a suburb of, of Portland. Amazingly, nobody on the ground was killed. Sadly, a number of people on the aircraft were killed. Now, when the accident investigators looked at this, they found that the crew had, had ceased to function as a team. So the captain had become fixated on that particular case in the potential gear problem, even though the checklist suggested that the gear was now safe. And all the kind of possibilities that might happen and how they can prepare for the landing that would eventually happen. And meanwhile, the engineer and the first officer were watching the fuel going down and they were trying to get the message across, but not as directly as they perhaps could have done. So the message never really got through to the captain until, in fact, one of the four engines flamed out because of less loss of fuel. And eventually... As they at that point then turned towards the airfield to try and get on the ground quickly, the other engines flamed out in quick succession and it was simply too late. And so in essence, what we had here was an aircraft that had a minor technical issue that was safe to land. Yet because of the way in which it was managed in the flight deck, what was a minor technical issue became a disaster. And that really led the work around understanding teamwork in aviation. And, and in the report, the American NTSB talked about the need for participative management. Now, whether you like the term or not, the reality is that started the journey that we've been on in aviation since 1978. And a number of key writers uh, in Leslie and Matthew Side, for example, have made the reference to United 173 and to my late wife's case as being very similar in how they ended up uh, and what caused them. So there's definitely, you can see the similarity starting to come in. Well, what, what, you've probably been forensic about this and you've, <laughs> your two worlds come together in this. If we look at these two points of failure, what is it in the human factors that cause these things to happen? Yeah. So I, I, I want to emphasize, first of all, that systems are important. So when I talk about systems, I don't mean necessarily IT systems or high tech. What I mean is the procedures and protocols and ways of working, if you like what we term the standard operating procedures, are important. So for example, in aviation, one of our standard operating procedures is we, we brief before we take off, before we land on every single time we fly. And we're doing that to understand the potential threats and potential errors and how we might deal with those. Now, in Elaine's case and in healthcare generally, that sort of briefing is unheard of. But it is about other systems as well. And you can have technology, for example, that reduce the probability of human error. So in, in healthcare, for example, we see electronic prescribing, where electronic systems can keep track of your prescriptions and make sure they're delivered safely, etc., but of course, they're still not perfect. Uh, they still require an element of human input. 
So systems are critical, but behaviours are also critical. If you've got a good system, you still need behaviours that support that. So we've talked about the standard operating procedures that make it easier to get it right. So we're talking about behaviours, for example, I've mentioned briefing. So anticipation is a very important behaviour for a team to adopt. So this is about your briefing, about what you're about to do. It's about considering threats and errors that might affect what you're about to do. And it doesn't matter what team you're in, whether you're in an insurance company, whether you're in an aviation company, just before you start something, just making sure everybody's clear and everybody's thought through what may happen with whatever it is you're about to do. It's about mental rehearsal. It's about simulation. It's about training. You know, if you run an organization of any sort, You can't expect good teamwork if people aren't trained in the basics, not just of teamwork, but actually of doing their job. So you need to make sure that people are competent uh, before you get into the details of the teamwork. And that's anticipation is all about building an understanding so that you can think ahead and trading supports that. The second thing is about having an open style. So specifically, United 173, I mentioned participative uh, management. So an open style is this ability to, as a leader, to ask an open question. And it's literally just that. And then sitting back and listening. So we, we spend a lot of time in aviation with this. So, for example, if I'm flying and something technical happens and there's maybe a fault in a system, I might be sitting there as a very experienced pilot thinking, oh, I know exactly what that is. I know exactly how to fix that. All we do is this and this. But what I actually do is I turn to my colleagues and say, okay, so what's happening? Or I might say, any ideas? Or have you seen this before? Or how would you approach this? You're inviting input. Inviting input. Absolutely. So, so. Then while people are then sharing their thoughts with me, it means that, first of all, I now have cognitive capacity to sit and listen and think because I might have an idea, but there's a high probability that simply by listening to their ideas, it might make my idea even better. In other words, not just we don't want just people to come up with a solution. We want them to come up with an optimum solution. And don't you know, do bear in mind that, you know, aircraft are very complicated and there are many things happening. Healthcare is very complicated and there are many things. And actually, most jobs these days are very complicated. So no matter how experienced technically you are, you won't have all the perspectives. But the other thing about this is I might have seen something happen and I might ask my team, you know, what's your thoughts on that? And they might say, well, X, Y and Z. And I think well, hang, and I sit in there thinking, hang on a minute. No, that's not what I saw. I thought it was ABC and they're saying it's X, Y and Z. And in fact, it might be that I've actually not perceived what's going on. And that was certainly true in my late wife's case. So so this really is a different way of thinking. And when I work with leaders, for example, I'll talk about open questions and they say, yeah, I do that. Absolutely. But then when you watch them, what will happen is somebody will come into an office and say, hey, boss, we've got a bit of an issue here. And, And the boss says, "Okay, so how do you think? We should deal with that. And then the person goes quiet for a moment and the boss says, well, I mean, for example, we could do this and we could do that or we could do this, but that's perhaps not such a bad idea. Anyway, what do you think? And inevitably the person says, well, well yeah, I suppose we could do what you think. Yeah, I, I think I think what you think. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I spoke to a colleague who works in intensive care in London Hospital 
And he's been using this style. And he said to me, you know, this is amazing when you use it. He said, because first of all, it creates the cognitive capacity. I can sit and listen to the nurses and my doctor colleagues around me. And, and I can formulate an opinion, a decision that I think is much better. He said, but not only that, he said, what I've noticed is since I tried doing this, I've noticed that, for example, junior staff will come up to me and say, hey, Mark, have you thought about this? And I didn't even ask him a question. It's creating the culture and it's sending out the behavioral message that says, I am open to ideas. I want to listen. And that is the really valuable thing about having an open style. I should just say about that, by the way, when I talk about that in healthcare, a lot of people say, oh, I totally agree with asking open questions. It's good because it helps the junior people learn. Now, that might be true, but that is taking completely the wrong attitude. Oh, that is a kind of a, that's driven from a point of ego. No, it's about helping you learn as well as other people learn. But yeah, the third thing I was going to say that is also, in, that we also teach with teamwork is that when something unusual happens, when something unexpected happens, slow down, pause. There's very few things in aviation, very few things in healthcare and other safety critical industries that when they happen, you must immediately react. And for many things, even on quite a, a time critical situation, just taking a moment, taking a deep breath, even counting is a good way. The military sometimes talk about tactical breathing, just giving you, yourself a moment to mentally catch up. And actually, a question at that point is always good as well, turning to your colleagues and saying, what the hell just happened? Can just slow that pace down. And, and there's a great bit of work done by Joseph Ledoux, a professor in New York back in the late 90s, and, and put into a wonderful book by Dr. Steve Peters called The Chimp Paradox. And it, the, the idea is that we have this internal chimp inside us that wants to react, and it, it reacts quicker than the human. But generally, what we find in safety critical industries is react in haste repentant leisure and that's true in businesses as well just take a moment thank you it's a lovely set of principles for any team actually martin what this might be slightly harsh because these are the sort of we've asked you for the causes of some of these problems or the um but what's the cause of those? if you put your finger on anything at the root causes why don't people do that because i'm sure a lot of people are listening saying well I, yes anticipation that sounds good yes i have an open style as you say and i i could do i can ask some questions and then oh yeah i'll slow down what what else is there in us as humans that prevents that or in the environment we're in that tends to those happening? What are the breaks on those those things? You know what? There's an element of human nature. So particularly when it comes to quick reactions, that's a kind of fight or flight that's part of us. And that can be a very powerful thing and often a, a really good thing to have. So, for example, if, you know, and we've seen a lot of this recently, and sadly, you know, if you're walking down the street and suddenly you see somebody running towards you with a knife, your fight or flight will kick in and you'll probably run very quickly the other direction without thinking. So the, the chimp reaction is very powerful. But the problem is most things we deal with in society in teams are complex and there isn't one simple answer to one simple problem. There are multiple consequences and un unknown consequences that we need as a team in a complex system to understand. And, and the vast majority of people listening to this will work in a complex system. But the other thing is that the systems that we work within often make it hard to get it right. 
and they encourage certain behaviors. Uh, and one of the things that I found in medical practice is that humility is not appreciated. The system uh, looks for people and encourages this kind of confidence and says, you know, we give you five years of medical school. We expect you to know the knowledge you were. When you left school, you had A grades, everything you did. That's why we recruited you. So why are you stupid? Why can't you work out this problem? We expect you to know more. So humility is frowned upon. And the, the argument is, by the way, that patients like confidence. Confidence. Well, there's a certain element to that, but I have to say as a patient, I feel much better when a doctor says to me, you know what, Martin, I don't know what the issue is, but I want to help find it because then I know that I'm dealing with somebody who's being authentic. And humility in healthcare, as I say, has almost been trained out. There is a concept, and, and Adam Grant, the American psychologist and a colleague of mine as well, used this phrase about confident humility, the ability to say to people, you know what, I've not seen this before, so tell me what you think is going on. Or to say, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm going to try and find out. So this is how we're going to do it. That's confident humility. And I think that's so valuable in everything we do. I, I can honestly say I've in the years I've worked with pilots, doctors, and people in other industries, what I've really learned is that confidence and competence are not the same thing. And I, I wanted to ask you, Martin, in the last 15 years, since you've really sort of specifically worked on, I don't you know, like a crusade in the industry, have you, have you found yourself in a situation in the aviation side of things where you thought, oh my God, all these, I've, I've come to a critical input, these into, into play. Have you found yourself in a, in a situation where you've, you've really had to practice what you're, You've been on the human side of it, I suppose, is what I'm saying. So, so I think what I've learned from healthcare is compassion. It's about understanding where somebody is coming from. And, and it's actually the, the phrase, you know, why did it make sense at the time? I think that's very important to understand that. But in answer to you, you or directly your question, so I think what you're saying is, have I been involved in a situation where I've really had to bring out these skills and all that sort of stuff? And the answer is, yeah, probably. But the reality is that you need to use these skills all the time. It needs to be habitual. You can't expect to go into a critical incident and behave in the sorts of ways I've described if you don't behave that when things are going easy and well. So these behaviours just need to be the norm because that way it often prevents the problem occurring. And we're, we're you know, in aviation, we're a great believer in this idea of avoid, trap, mitigate. The idea that when a problem occurs, you are mitigating already. But what you want to do is to have trapped that problem early enough and even better to have avoided it before it even happened. And so these behaviours need to become second nature. But yeah, certainly in the simulator, I've had plenty of times when I'm using these skills. I'm also training other people to use these skills. But Day to day, I'm using them as well because if I didn't, I would probably feel a lot less safe than I yeah. than I am. That's a brilliant answer, and I and I think what a huge lesson for all of us out of this is not to wait for the critical incident, but to make it a standard practice. 
in every way that we behave in all aspects. And it's about priming the team, I suppose, so they get used to a way of behaving and and role modelling that as well. I think that we often as leaders think it's all about what we have to do and actually sometimes forget to actually build that little unit around us who have similar approaches. So I I think that's a wonderful uh, way to really land on the end on the teams. And Martin, it's been a pleasure and an honour to have you on We Not Me today. I think that your story of taking a tragic event and turning it into something that can save others and improve the world is truly inspiring. And you've managed to turn that into really practical lessons. I'm sure people want to listen to the podcast a couple of times to extract the juice, but I hope this can be part of your mission as well. And so we're delighted to have uh, had you on the show, but also to support what you're trying to do. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Really appreciate it. I read an article in the New Statesman about Martin and about this story. And he came up with a really interesting quote saying that like, like achievements, accidents are a team effort. And it's this combination that he pulled out of this fixation error. You know, there's this fixation around, I'm, I'm the expert, I've got to have all the answers. And, and then combining that with this time perception, thinking somehow, just losing the fact And this is what happened, you know, with the United Airlines example, just didn't twig that actually there's a limited amount of time because you've got a limited amount of fuel, which you'd think would be a basic, but that fixation narrowed that time perception. And then the hierarchy is, you know, questioning the boss, you know, or questioning somebody that you think is in a more superior role. And making an assumption, they know exactly what to do when they might not to be knowing what to do. And you could see that actually specifically in the tragic story of um, Martin's late wife, where he said that they, the other, the juniors on the team, so in, and even that in, is quite an interesting bit of language, but the juniors didn't know how to communicate. They didn't know how to get their message across was exactly what he said. And you think they're in the same room. And I think it does really question, are they a team? Or are there the juniors over here? And actually, you know, we, and to the hierarchy point, we're the experts, we've got this. And if anyone in the team doesn't know how to get the message across, your your teamwork is really fragmenting. You're not really together. And and I think that might be the first thing is to say, we're all in this and you all have permission to to say something. Otherwise, there there is no teamwork, really. Exactly. And they were probably, the the consultants might have been working as a team and the nurses might have been working as a team, but that's two teams. Um, And they couldn't, really communicate and it really occurred to me though that i could really get this uh you could imagine i think that the emergencies and accidents seem to drive ourselves to do the exactly the wrong things as you say those things that you talked about the the fixation the time perception and and going for hierarchy they are the opposite of what's needed and and there's a huge step that needs to be made by us when we find ourselves in this is to say right actually i need to do the opposite of what my chimp brain is is trying trying to get me to do and you can see the challenge you can see that absolutely and it's easy to look from the outside but i'm sure we'd all be challenged to do those to do the opposite i think that would definitely definitely happen it reminds me of dad's army and the guy that was used to say, don't panic, don't panic. And that's Dispecting what your brain's Cap- doing. Captain Benerin. <laughs> <laughs> that's what your brain's doing at that point. But I think that, that trying to have the antithesis of that through anticipation that there can be challenges and those open questions 
and having that climate for that. That's your insurance policy to make sure that, that these things don't happen. And I think there's some really valuable lessons to be taken from, from the aviation industry because it's a costly mistake. Yeah, and that, that openness really jumped out for me. I actually wrote a little piece about it this week, having heard Martin, and sort of that open style. Yes, ask open questions, but actually, in a way, it's about... But not about the doing of openness, it's about the being of openness. You know, he said, oh, that was quite funny. People say, yeah, I like to ask open questions because it helps the juniors to learn. Um, and he's saying, <laughs> no, it's about helping you to learn. I thought that was really telling. And I think we can all easily fall into that trap. But but really are being open um, rather than just doing open was, was a big takeaway for me. So, um, wow, what a huge episode that was and amazing learnings for everyone that could generally save a life. So wonderful to have martin on the show absolutely brilliant and next week we have james Pryor, who is the um he was the head of leadership at gilead and james always has something interesting to say he does a lot of thinking a lot of writing a lot of teaching in the world of leadership and uh yeah he'll have a fresh perspective on teams and the roles that people can play in that so can't wait to uh, to hear james uh in the coming up episode but that, Pierre, is it for this episode. You can all find show notes and resources at squadify.net. Just click on the We Not Me podcast link. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the love and recommend it to your friends. We Not Me is produced by Mark Steadman of Origin. Thank you so much for listening. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. 